0: Good morning, church. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 in just a minute, if you want to turn there. Wow, seems a little hot, the microphone. Maybe it's just the spirit working within me. It's what? It's the microphone. I hear kind of an echo, right? Okay. Um, Have you ever played that game in your head where you wonder... What would it be like to live in a certain place in a certain time other than our own? You know, kind of go back and, you know, maybe in a time machine. And I, you know, I just, maybe it's just me. But I play that game every now and then in my head. And, and I was thinking the other day man, I would hate to be a Puritan. You know, those folks, they had it rough. I mean, there were, just, there were just too many rules. And there were some pretty serious punishments if you messed up. I mean, you know, there were rules against almost everything. And, of course, you had your standard things like lying and cheating, stealing and fornication. Uh, but then you had some other stuff on top of it. They had, they had rules about gambling and games and what you could wear and what you had to do. Church attendance was mandatory. And there was fines for those who would sleep in church. So I got my eye on you, all right? Because I'm gonna collect that as a personal fine, right? So just be be careful. And PDA was was not Uh, looked well upon, especially on a Sunday. And so there was a certain sea captain who returned after three years at sea, and he made the mistake of kissing his wife in public, and it cost him several hours in the stocks. Just got to be careful. Yet, although I didn't grow up as a Puritan, I was taught, as, as some of you were, a, a kind of legalistic form of religion. And there were lots of rules. There were lots of do's and don'ts. Not, of course, like in Albert's day when you know, dice and cards were frowned upon, but it was still somewhat stifling for me. And not to mention that your doctrine had to be right. And if you're living under that kind of religion, of course, it's hard sometimes to feel quite sure of your salvation, to to recognize that maybe, uh, you know, you were going to heaven or not. There was always that sense of doubt. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Will I make it? So it's not hard for me to remember that first time that I discovered grace that concept was not only liberating for me, but it opened up a whole new worldview. It was, it was like freedom. It was tremendous. But I don't think that you can truly appreciate grace. In fact, uh, you know, I wonder sometimes for those uh, who've been raised in a a different environment if they really recognize what grace is. I I mean, in in these days, grace has come to be far more popular. It's preached about, it's taught about, it's sung about. Even in churches of Christ, grace is, is there. And uh, I don't know that you can really appreciate it unless you were raised under that legalism. So maybe we need a little bit of legalism here for for our young people to recognize what grace truly is. But grace, I think, oftentimes has been misunderstood by Christians, by many Christians. It's become something like a a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you recognize the monopoly reference there. Um, It's something that can free you if you've done something wrong, right? You don't have to worry about any kind of guilt uh, but sometimes it's used to rationalize certain behaviors to, to in fact, uh, allow you to do things that you know you are wrong. And it's, it's kind of you think in your head or maybe just uh, unconsciously you're recognizing, ah, it's okay. God's grace will cover that. And it allows some people to go on living as they always have without changing anything and without guilt or concern and it's not a new view this misunderstanding of grace is something that we see even in the earliest churches in our New Testament and specifically in the Corinthian church and one prime example of this is in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians verse 23 the line in some of your translations will read all things are lawful or other translations I have the right to do anything it was a sentiment that the Corinthians used to justify all kinds of behaviors from frequenting prostitutes to uh, eating in pagan temples. And in this, it's this latter issue that I wanna talk about this morning, specifically Paul's teaching about food sacrifice to idols. And you might be thinking to yourself, now why in the world would you wanna talk about this particular issue It seems so antiquated and irrelevant to our own day? After all, when was the last time any of us have felt tempted to go to a pagan temple, let alone perhaps to partake of uh, the offering that has been sacrificed to the God? I would imagine that's probably not been something on your agenda recently. Can't we safely bypass this section of text and say, oh, that's so merely of historical interest? On the contrary, behind Paul's instructions to these earliest Christians lies one of the most fundamental principles of the gospel. So although the issue might be somewhat irrelevant, the principle in his instructions is not. And so... We're going to look at that this morning, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back a little bit. Let's try and understand what well, the situation that Paul is talking about. So, Paul goes to Corinth around 50 CE, and he arrives in this very pagan city. It's a city that doesn't know the name of Jesus Christ, and everybody is worshiping gods. Paul is going to, however, be able to establish a foothold here. He spends about 18 months in this city teaching the gospel. And he works for a good bit of that time, supporting himself in his trade as a tent maker. So we can imagine Paul somewhere in this city, um, either in a rented shop or perhaps in the open air or under the shade of a tent, sewing together skins. And and he talks to his customers, and he talks to those who are passing by, and he tells them about Jesus, and he talks to them about redemption and salvation. He talks to them about freedom from the Jewish law. And some of those ideas and some of those concepts, many of those for Gentiles would be new because they'd been raised under a different form of religion and a different ethical code. But this idea of grace captured at least some of them. And the church took root. It started out small at first. It would have been maybe 50 to 100 people meeting in various homes. And it was a significant challenge for Paul. Because these were people who hadn't, for the most part, been raised in a Jewish environment. They they didn't know the Jewish God, they didn't know the Ten Commandments, they didn't know the laws, they were, they were raised in a completely different world. And so Paul had to try and teach them about Jesus and God from the very beginning. And, and we see just how difficult this is in the letter of 1 Corinthians because Paul here has to deal with so many different issues, from internal strife to moral failings. We see things, for example, uh, like some of the Christians going to prostitutes. You might think, why in the world would they do that? Well, they were raised in a world where that wasn't frowned upon, where where no one thought twice about that. And so Paul has to explain to them why that might be a bad idea. But there's this other issue that was confronting these early Christians. It it occurs in chapters eight through 10, where it talks about food sacrifice to idols. And you might think that this would be a no-brainer, that Christians, of course, shouldn't be associated with idols in any way. But the matter was not so simple. Because temples in Corinth, pagan temples in Corinth, were like Christian churches in Nashville. They're all over the place. And the fundamental form of worship in a a pagan temple was sacrifice. And so you had all of this pagan, uh, uh, this meat that had been sacrificed to pagan uh, idols, everywhere. And so Paul has to address three different questions or scenarios in these three chapters that are facing the Corinthian Christians. Number one, what do we do about eating in an idol's temple? Number two, what about eating meat sold in the meat market? And number three, what about if I am invited over to a non-Christian's house and eat there? Now, the first issue might seem rather simple to answer. After all, why would a Christian go to a pagan temple at all. They should just stay away from that. But the answer is a little bit more complicated than that. First of all, we have to recognize that the Greeks and the Romans were very sociable people. And one of their favorite forms of interacting with each other was what we call the formal banquet, After all, there was no television to distract them. So especially the rich, in the evenings, they would often have a dinner party in their home where they would invite their friends, their cronies, but also those who were less well-off clients of theirs. And they would have this long, drawn-out meal. And then afterward, there would be some form of entertainment, either a philosophical debate, and I'm sure the teenagers are thinking, how could that be entertaining? But it was a poetry reading, a musical performance of some kind, and it would, it would last for hours. And so uh, this was a, a key element of the society back then. But there were banquets for all kinds of reasons. You would have a banquet for, say, for example, a, for a birthday party. You could have a, a banquet for a coming-of-age party. You could have a banquet for a trade guild. People who were from the same uh, occupation would get together and eat together. There were even burial societies that would have banquets so this was made up of poor people who couldn't afford to bury you know their own themselves. cells they, they didn't have a plot or a cemetery or anything like that so they would band together and they would pledge to to pay for each other's funerals and uh, to attend so that there'd be at least someone there to you know to attend the funeral but, but you know instead of waiting simply till someone died they'd get together ahead of time and just you know get to know each other and have fun they'd have banquets but not everyone had a house big enough to host a banquet. And so, uh, especially most people, they didn't have these kinds of facilities. They'd have to rent someplace else out. And in those days, the, the best place to find a rented dining hall would be in the local temple. Much like here at 4th Avenue, we have a fellowship hall which we can use for our own benefit, but you could rent it out for a wedding, say, even if you don't belong here. So, too, in ancient times, you might use a a local temple's dining hall for a specific occasion. And we know this because we have invitations from the ancient world. And now there's a couple of them up here. You can read those for yourselves. Uh, Invitations inviting friends and relatives to a specific occasion like a birthday party, but it was held at a temple. So imagine yourself as a Christian in Corinth, and you've just received this invitation from a non-Christian relative or friend or business associate, or maybe even your boss, and it would be rather rude to turn it down. I mean, you know, after all, they're, they're wanting you to come and celebrate with them, and so it was quite the dilemma. But here's where at least for some of the Corinthians, their their theology came into play and helped rescue them. And we see this clearly in the beginning section of chapter 8. So let's read the first part, verses 1 through 6. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now notice the quotation marks in some of these phrases. These are statements that Paul is using that that actually reflect more of the Corinthian view. That this is the rationalization that some of these Corinthian Christians are using for participating in these meals. And we can recognize from verse 10 that some of them are actually doing this. And so Paul is responding here. Their thinking is something like this. We have learned now as Christians... Uh, that there is only one God. And if so, that means that the gods of the pagans don't exist. They're not real at all. And so we can't really worship something that doesn't exist. So when we eat this food, it's harmless. Indeed, it might even demonstrate how spiritually knowledgeable we are that we can go to this pagan temple and do this. You see, their knowledge that these gods aren't really gods that they don't exist enables them to eat in a pagan temple with a clear conscience after all they're they're not participating in a formal worship service of a pagan god I mean, it is happening in an idol's temple, and yes, the food that they're eating probably was offered in sacrifice to the God, and yes, there was most likely a libation poured out in honor of the deity, and yes, there would have been prayers and so forth, but it's after all simply a birthday party. And we have to remember that that back in the day, uh, the, the division between the sacred and the secular that we hold so tightly was, was not really there, that everything was kind of mixed together, and that's what causes the problem. See, their logic sounds good, but Paul wants them to know this, that there is a greater guiding principle than simply knowledge. Love is far more important than knowledge. Knowledge might say, it's okay to do what you're doing, but love dictates otherwise. But how does love... Fig- Figure into the picture. Look, look at the, uh, the rest of the text, verse 7 and following. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not he be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You see, the problem is that not all of the Corinthian Christians have the same knowledge. They don't all have the same understanding. Some have not quite realized that these gods do not really exist. In fact, I mean, just simply a short time ago, they had been worshiping these things as if they were real. And so, it's confusing for them. And so, Paul's concern here is that these Christians who have knowledge, those who feel confident about their ability to eat in the idol's temple without violating their conscience, might negatively impact these other Christians with a weaker conscience. Weaker meaning that they are uncertain, that they're not strong in their conviction. And so, what happens here, Paul says, is suppose they see you. Eating in this idol's temple, you, a fellow Christian. And now they're confused, and they might say to themselves, Well, if if he can do it, then, then I can do it. And so when they get one of these invitations, they'll accept it, and then they'll go participate, but they don't have the same knowledge that you do. And so in their minds, the gods are still quite real, and so they have actually slipped back into paganism. And Paul says they have been destroyed by your knowledge. But is, the, is it really their fault? I mean, after all, the strong didn't what they did with a perfectly clean conscience. They, they didn't do anything wrong on their own. They can't help it if someone else is uncertain about uh, what is right or true or unsure about these things. But Paul says it is their responsibility. For these weaker Corinthian Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're ones for whom Christ died. They're part of the family. And, and that your actions are significant, have a significant impact on them. And love dictates that you keep their best interests in mind. And so Paul comes out with this, this startling conclusion, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brothers stumble... I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Say it isn't so, Paul. I mean, this is horrifying to a carnivore such as myself. I mean, think about it. No more hamburgers. No more steak. This would be like a life in purgatory. Why would he even suggest such a thing? Paul's point is that, that as a Christian, you should be willing to sacrifice your own rights and privileges For the sake of others. Now we need to be careful here because this text has been trotted out on many occasions in what we call the weaker brother argument. Uh, This usually happens by those uh, members of the church who are quite unhappy with what is going on, and they will come to you, and this is speaking from personal experience, they will take you to lunch. Buy your lunch, and then at the end, they will say something like this. You know, you've been doing X at church, and we're not really happy with that. And I feel like the weaker brother here, you're causing me offense, you're causing me to stumble. And Paul says, you need to stop this. All right, they try that. It doesn't work, but they try it. This has nothing to do with offending others, with, with causing them discomfort. But it has everything to do with recognizing how your actions might Impact others, how they might be in some sense detrimental or harmful to others. Now, let's jump to chapter 10 and look at the the other two issues very, very quickly. Look at verse 23. We're skipping over a a good bit of material here because of time. Verse 23 All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Quote All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Notice again these words that are in quotes. And notice that the phrase is repeated. This is what we call Corinthian slogans. And what Paul is doing here is he is either quoting or at least summarizing the Corinthian view. That's their language. All things are lawful. His response Not all things are beneficial. Not all things are helpful. It is here in particular that we see the Corinthian misunderstanding of grace. I think for them it has been interpreted as all things are lawful or I can do anything. They have most likely twisted Paul's teaching on grace and made it very self-serving. In their minds, God's grace covers all. There's nothing to worry about. Yet for Paul, grace is is not about rights and privileges, but it's about what is beneficial. It's about what is helpful. It's not only for me, but particularly for those who are around me. What's helpful for them? So we see clearly in these next several issues the way this plays out. Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You see, the meat market was a particular challenge for Corinthian Christians because of all this excess meat that had been sacrificed. All the pagan sacrifices, what they, they weren't able to eat during the worship time, that ended up in the meat market. And it was sold. And it wasn't as if there was a sign on it that said, Offered to Apollo this morning. It looked like any other meat. And so you didn't know. And so the question for the Corinthian Christians is, Do I need to ask... Do I need to try and figure out, is this meat that was slaughtered by the farmer or this was meat that was slaughtered in, 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 the, in the temple this morning? What, what, which is it? And Paul says, don't worry about it, that there is no taint on the meat itself. And then he goes to the third issue. Look at verse 27. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean, I do not mean your conscience, but his. You see, this in this third scenario, it's related to eating meat in a, in a, Christian's, uh, me, in a non-Christian's home, and the same principle applies. Just eat whatever is set before you. Don't ask any questions. There's no taint on the meat. It won't harm you. But here's where it gets interesting. If that person should say to you, this non-Christian should say, just as you're about to take that first bite of steak, it's coming to your mouth, He said, by the way, I meant to tell you, um, that was offered in the temple to, you know, whoever it might be. Then Paul says, don't eat. Not because there's any taint on the meat, but don't eat because of their conscience, because Seemingly, the only reason they would tell you that is because they might think that there would be a problem for Christians to eat this kind of meat, that that Christians might not want to associate with idols. And if they think that way, then you shouldn't eat because you don't want to give them the impression that you have anything to do with idols, even though you know the meat is perfectly fine. So you're not eating because of them. Now, how is any of this relevant to us? I mean, after all, again, uh, we we don't really face this issue. Uh, Although I did at one time face this when I went to the Hindu temple in Nashville a few years ago. But that's another story. But there's a principle here behind Paul's instructions to these Corinthian Christians that I think is fundamental. Look at the end of the, the, the section here, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Now, although you might recognize that the last verse there is slotted as chapter 11, verse 1, I think that's wrong. I think it actually is the summation of his argument from chapters 8 through 10. That, that Paul is saying the fundamental way in which you imitate Christ is by placing the needs of others above your own. Which brings us back to that misunderstanding of grace I talked about at the beginning. You see, I think this idea that all things are lawful or I have the right to do anything is not just an idea of these ancient Corinthian Christians. I think it's alive and well with us today among American Christians. Especially those of us raised in a consumerist culture where everything is gauged by how it affects me or how it impacts me or how it might benefit me. And I I think we've been sold this cheap form of grace that promises freedom from guilt without restrictions, without restraint on any kind of behavior. It's a law-free gospel that has been interpreted as do what you want and grace will take care of it. Have no worries. And the pendulum has swung from, from legalism to libertinism. But grace is not a license to sin. Grace is is not an excuse to do what you want. God has not become lax or lowered the bar in any way. So how do we avoid these two extremes? It seems like we have a problem here. Because if I put strong rules in place to guide my behavior or your behavior, if I give you a list of do's and don'ts, it's so easy to fall into legalism. But if I scrap the rules then it seems like you get this anything-goes kind of faith. How do we avoid that problem? And I think what Paul has done here in this text is to help point us in a direction of an answer. You see, faith and salvation are not all about me. As Americans, we often think in individualistic terms, but Paul, and especially Jesus, are trying to show us a different path, a different way. They're trying to get us to realize that the kingdom is a team sport, that, that we're all in this together. We're not in it alone. That everything we do is not for our own glory and for our own satisfaction, but it's for the good of the whole. It's it's for the good of everyone. That God is not simply interested in redeeming us. He is redeeming the world. And we're a part of that. And and so the guiding principle for Christians is not knowledge. Our actions shouldn't be determined by what I can do, but by what I should do. It's not about me pressing my rights and my privileges, but it's rather looking out to see what is most beneficial for others, for all. See, this is the principle that led Jesus to a life of sacrifice. It's the same principle that led him all the way to the cross. We've received the grace of God, not merely so we can bask in its glory, but so that we ourselves can become agents of grace to others, and bring them closer to God. So Paul wants us to think about our actions, to think about what we do, everything we do, through that grid. How is what I'm doing impacting others, either for their benefit or for their harm? Will what I am about to do bring them closer to God or move them farther away? Even if what you are about to do, you know is right. You think about, what they might think and how they might perceive it. In many ways, this is a far harder path than a legalistic faith. I mean, after all, in legalism, there's all kinds of rules to follow, but at least you know what they are. Think about the scenario in in 1 Corinthians 8. We can make a rule. Don't go eat in a pagan temple. Done. Taken care of. But Paul wants us and them to ask a far more difficult question. How might what I do impact other people for Christ? Far more ambiguous question. invite the praise team to come up as we close. As Americans, this might rub against the grain. After all, why should I worry about them anyway? Why should my freedom and my liberty and my privileges and my rights be constrained by somebody else's weakness? I can't help it if they haven't gotten up to speed on these things. Why am I being constrained? And the answer of this text, and in fact, much of the New Testament and the example of Jesus, is because love is what guides us, not knowledge.